Hello friends, my name is Brenna. And I'm Danny, and, and this, this is Lago Stories. Today's episode contains graphic information that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener's discretion is advised. Welcome back, Lagos friends, to episode 10. Can you believe we're in double digits? I know. It was like just yesterday we started. For real. We're going places. Yeah. Doing I'm things. excited. <laughs> but today's case is a wild one. And I'm talking like red yarn strings pointing in different directions to different photos, taking up a whole wall type of case. And I have a feeling this is going to be a longer episode because this is by far the most complex case I've ever researched. So grab a drink, <laughs> maybe a snack, and buckle up. And Danny, I'm also going to need you to jump in with any questions you have so we can make sure no one is confused. Oh, girl, you know I'm here for all the questions. Okay, perfect. <laughs> I also love your analogy. I love the true crimes with all of the yarn everywhere. I think those are so cool. I would love to build one one day, but I don't know if I have the patience. Right. And this would be the perfect case if you wanted to recreate it, and I'm totally down for that. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) Alrighty, let's get into it. I want to start by telling you about a woman named Unsun Jun. Unsun was in her mid-40s living in Richmond, California in 2002, and by all accounts, she was an intelligent, vibrant, and artistic woman who had immigrated from Korea. It is said that she was a, quote, true bohemian, end quote, as she loved exploring different religions and cultures. She stayed in touch with one of her closest friends, Renee Rose, who she met at a ceramics class, but shortly after moving in with her new boyfriend two years prior, Rose noticed Joan becoming more estranged from her family and friends. Her boyfriend, who was also her common-law husband, Larry Vanner, was in his mid-50s and worked as a handyman. Rose recalls that when she first met Vanner, she did not like him at all, but felt that Joan was uneasy about finding love later on in life. Rose became quite suspicious after not hearing from Joan after several weeks, but when she called the home to speak with her, Larry always had a different excuse of where she was and why she couldn't talk. Uh Uh-uh. If this was happening and Tanner was like, sorry, Brenna can't call the phone. Every time, girl? Every time. No. (laughs) For weeks. Uh Uh-uh. I'm going over there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And the excuses were anywhere from Jen needing to take care of her sick mother to her seeking psychiatric care in a facility to Larry telling Rose that she no longer wanted to be friends with her anymore. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But Rose, knowing her best friend well, became more suspicious after every phone call with Larry. In an interview for ABC's 2020 episode, The Chameleon, Rose stated, quote, I want Unsun, not you. I want Unsun to tell me that she's done with our relationship or I'm going to get the sheriff involved, end quote. She continued telling Larry that if she did not hear Jun's voice on her answering machine by the time she got back from vacation, that she would file a missing persons report. Good for her. Yes, Rose. Ten days later, Rose returned from vacation, and still not hearing from Jun, she made true on her promise. Roxanne Grunheide from the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department was assigned to the case. Is this where you're going to tell me, oh, because her husband said it's fine, we're not going to look into it, or are we actually going to dive in? No, girl, we are going to dive in. We got a good detective on this case. thank God. (laughs) And I am pumped. So, Roxanne, remember her name because... Mm -hmm. good detective 
But the first obvious place to start was to question her live-in boyfriend, Larry. But when Larry was brought in for questioning, he also provided detectives with different stories as to where she was. And even though Roxanne noted that he was polite, soft-spoken, and charming with his twinkly bright blue eyes, it became clear that in the end, he did not want to cooperate with police. He did, however, agree to be fingerprinted voluntarily, which would lead detectives to an even larger mystery. Larry Vanner was not Larry Vanner. His fingerprints showed a record of multiple crimes under multiple aliases, but that his name was actually Curtis Kimball. Curtis Kimball was originally arrested in 1985 for a DUI and child endangerment when he was involved in a drug driving accident with his young daughter in the car. Oh no. When he was released on bail, he immediately absconded. In 1988, he was arrested for Grand Theft Auto under the name Gerald Mockerman. By the way, he had a matching social security number and date of birth to match Gerald Mockerman. But police in Scotts Valley, California were searching for a man named Gordon Jensen who had abandoned a child in 1986. All fingerprints from Larry Vanner, Gerald Mockerman, and Gordon Jensen matched the fingerprints of Curtis Kimball. Curtis Kimball was ultimately convicted of child abandonment in 1988 and served a year and a half in prison. When he was released on parole in 1990, that same day he fled, never to be seen again until being questioned as Larry Vanner. Okay, so the identity thing really like crawls under my skin because it freaks me out. But right here, we're already talking about three different people with three different socials and date of births that match each identity. So, like, this guy is good. Yeah, right? Like, and committing multiple crimes. Like, right, these are smaller crimes. But still, how do you get a social security? And if you know the answer, don't tell me. (laughs) How do you get, like, a social security number and date of birth to match a fake identity, especially back, like, in the 80s and the 90s? Yeah, it's, that's impressive and also very scary. (laughs) Girl, just wait. But all the people that he was matching identities to had a criminal history as well, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So he was lining up with people that are similar. And it's not like he was going for a white-collared, all-American person. Like, he was going for criminals as well. Was that part of his MO or it just was No, so he was actually creating the fake identities himself. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, no. Like, he would li- – and these were different cities, right? So he would, like, so commit a crime. So he wasn't even stealing other people's identities. Nope. He was creating them. Correct. Uh-uh. Living like a different persona. Nope. <laughs> now, now that police know that Larry Vanner is actually Curtis Kimball, who is a wanted fugitive, he's immediately placed under arrest in 2002. With Kimball now in custody, detectives were able to obtain a search warrant for John's residence, which is where he lived with her. And I just want to point out, it was her home, and he moved in with her. Just putting that up. <laughs> Roxanne and her colleague enter the home and noted that the home was pretty dirty and messy, but there was no sign of a struggle or that anything was necessarily out of place. They also noted that there was an apparent lack of any woman's property, such as clothing or shoes in the home, but Unsun's photo were still hanging on the fridge. She was smiling and looked happy. As Roxanne and her partner continue their search, they enter the garage and see that Jen had a bunch of pottery in various stages of progression. But Roxanne's partner noticed a small door at the back of the garage, which led into a small room 
kind of like a crawl space. Mm -hmm. There they find a huge pile of cat litter. And when I say huge, I mean Roxanne describes this pile to be about two to three feet high and four to five feet across. It was 10 bags worth of cat litter. Okay, so I know you have several cats. Yes. Have you ever used that much cat litter? No. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think that no. was normal, but you know, just had to ask the cat expert. even like one bag, depending on right litter box size, like one bag, and these are bigger bags, so 40, 50 pound bag, mm-hmm. each bag. And that would get like one to two litter boxes full of cat litter. Oh gosh. So we had 10 and just all like in a pile, unbagged in this garage, back of room garage space. Oh, sketchy. Very sus. Now, if the pile of cat litter wasn't suspicious enough, Roxanne also noticed an axe leaning up against the wall and a large amount of blood splatter around the room. They called in a forensic team to come search through the pile of litter, and the first thing they uncovered was a human foot wearing a flip-flop that had been completely mummified. The police would positively identify the dismembered remains of Unsun Jun, and the cause of her death was blunt force trauma to the head. Okay, I need to get to the part where we explain this because that's just gross why was he even doing that so and i don't really go into it just because there's so much more but it was theorized that and roxanne also says that when she's standing there she doesn't smell anything so they don't know like they're like there's probably a body under there but they wouldn't be able to tell otherwise so the thought was this was a temporary solution until he could dispose of her body permanently Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know if he was just, like, weird into keeping things like that. Because, I mean, that's just, like, a lot of effort. Yeah. Well, and especially, like, I don't think he meant to mummify the remains. But mummification involves basically, like, dehydrating. And the kitty litter just basically soaked up. Yeah. Everything. It's not looking good for Curtis Kimball, a.k.a. Larry Vanner. Police have found Unsun's remains in the house he was living in, but unfortunately, police were not able to prove any items in the home were used as the murder weapon. Prosecutors needed more evidence to prove that Curtis Kimball was responsible for her murder. If police could prove that Kimball was the one that bought all of the cat litter, this could provide a link between the murder, but that's easier said than done. Now, as we were saying, as a cat lady myself, There are countless brands of cat litter, and pretty much every grocery store or larger home store sells cat litter. This would seem to be finding a needle in a haystack. I also, like, I get that they have to do their due diligence and see where it comes from and how they connect all the dots, but this man is literally living in a home where this lady is being mummified in a mountain of cat litter. Like, I don't think if I would do something like that that I would build this mummification (laughs) in someone else's home that's true but I think they were trying to get okay like this is premeditated he bought the cat litter afterwards or else like a good defense attorney could say oh well you know it was an accident and he should only be you know charged for improper disposal of a body yeah it was an accident so he decided to Uh, chop her up and then put her in chop her up yeah Okay. But yeah, so this is kind of them just trying to make the case as concrete as possible. That makes sense. 
but as Roxanne reviewed security footage of Kimball using June's credit card at an ATM, she noticed that in the back of the video, there was this cool little pet shop. On this hunch, Roxanne went to the pet shop and immediately a worker confirmed that this scruffy looking man with a big gray mustache bought 10 bags of cat litter there. The worker specifically remembered his bright blue eyes. Armed with this evidence, the prosecutor moved forward with the pre-trial hearing. To everyone's shock, Kimball pleaded guilty to the murder of Unsun June and pretty much just said, I'm done talking, put me in jail, I'm not going to speak about anything else. Again, everyone was shocked by this, even the judge and Kimball's own defense attorney because everyone thought he would surely put up some kind of fight. Now, Roxanne was one person that grew very suspicious of this and felt that Kimball was only pleading guilty because he didn't want anyone to look deeper into his previous crimes, but that's exactly what she did. Now, Roxanne was a homicide detective with a reputation for being overly analytical, and her superiors even told her once that her reports were, quote, too detailed, end quote. But the main thing that bothered Roxanne so much was the daughter Kimball abandoned in 1986 under the name Gordon Jensen. With Kimball serving 15 to life behind bars, she ordered a DNA test to see if this little girl was really his daughter. Ooh, I feel it. Oh my God, I'm getting nervous. But okay, let's just backtrack to the quote unquote too detailed. Yeah. So I'm gonna come in here and say it. I feel like they said that because she's a woman. That's just my personal opinion. But also you're a freaking police officer. How can you have too many details? Yeah, like literally you hear about these cases that they're like, oh my God, like I saw this piece of dirt and I thought it was something else and like 20 years later that's what put it together yes. so like I would definitely be that detective like I'm noting everything down yes like even the, those shows exhibit a it's like this gravel was in the car and that's how we discovered yes. he was the murderer or they found like a cat hair which would totally be me I could yeah. not commit a crime because cat hair and they would trace the dna The little girl's name was Lisa and was about five years old when Kimball abandoned her. Kimball worked as the handyman or the maintenance guy at Holiday Host RV Park in Scotts Valley, California, where he lived with Lisa in a camper attached to his pickup truck. Since Lisa was little, she would often be found running around the RV park while her father was working. She played with other kids and befriended an older couple that were staying at the RV park temporarily. Their last name was Decker. The Deckers loved and adored little Lisa, but noticed that she was very thin, dirty, had raggedy clothes, and they could hear her crying late at night on most nights. Her father, Gordon Jensen, aka Curtis Kimball, confided in the Deckers that he was having a hard time raising Lisa alone. Jensen told many people around the park that her mother was deceased, although he provided different accounts of how she died. One version was that the family was robbed and Lisa's mother ran out in the street and was killed by oncoming traffic. Another version was that she died from cancer. Okay, those are very different stories. (laughs) Like, it'd be one if you're like, oh, she was shot or she was stabbed. But, like, from dying from an illness to, like, a very dramatic she experience. She was running after this perpetrator. And that got, doesn't even sound like you're trying to like cover well, that, it up. Like you're you're lying. You want to make it like as forgettable as possible. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But that's what he told different people. And regardless, the Deckers believe that Jensen truly wanted a better life for Lisa and offered to help. The Deckers explained that they had a daughter in Southern California that really wanted a little girl. 
And after hearing this, Jensen asked if their daughter would be able to take Lisa on like a trial-based adoption. After much discussion, it had been agreed upon, and the Deckers took Lisa to Southern California on a two-week trial period. Shortly after Lisa's arrival, though, they noticed that she showed signs of being a victim of abuse and immediately contacted authorities. They also contacted an attorney to write up adoption paperwork, as they did really bond with Lisa, and wanted to make sure she would never have to live with Jensen again. When they traveled back up to the RV park to get the adoption paperwork signed, Jensen had vanished. Police began the investigation to locate Jensen, but with no luck, they went back to the RV park to see if they could pull fingerprints to learn more about this guy. The police were able to locate Jensen's fingerprints buried deep within a security system he installed as a worker there, and the owner of the park confirmed that no other person had touched the system. Of course, we now know that when running these prints, the police found Gordon Jensen was a fake identity and his name was actually Curtis Kimball, who would later be arrested under Gerald Mockerman in 1988, where he was sentenced to a year and a half for Leeson's abandonment charge. Now, unfortunately, because police could not locate Jensen in 1986, and the adoption paperwork had not been signed by Jensen, the Deckers were unable to keep Lisa in their care. They were forced to give Lisa to authorities who placed her in child protective services, which was completely heartbreaking for all involved. Okay, that last part gave me chills, and it also just, like, ticks me off, because it's, like, really, they were the only reason this child even had a chance and they figured out this and then you're just gonna do that but yeah absolutely like they literally saved her and then they have to give her back into this system yeah that's just upsetting but i mean homie is not very good at hiding what he's doing so it's interesting that he keeps getting away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the stuff you're telling me doesn't even make sense of how, like, your wife dies or you have this child. Like, it, it's just dumb. And then he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I mean, this is 1981, 1985 ish. There's a lot of dates in here. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny that you bring this up because he does keep getting away and that's a trend that unfortunately we're just gonna keep seeing but I want to give you a little heads up the women in this case are like they don't buy his bull yes girls <laughs> so it'll be good But okay, now back to the year 2003. Roxanne received the DNA test back from Lisa's DNA, the sample that had been collected when she's five years old and was sent to Child Protective Services, and then a DNA sample from Kimball in prison. And unsurprisingly, he's not biologically related to her. Oh my god. Now, Roxanne's suspicions were correct, but this result just left her with more unanswered questions. If Lisa wasn't Kimball's daughter, then where is her real family, and is Lisa even Lisa? By now, Lisa is 22 years old, and Roxanne hands over the missing person found Jane Doe case to the San Bernardino authorities, who opens a new case and begins investigating. Lisa's new case quickly becomes cold until 2015, when Lisa has an idea of getting her DNA tested on Ancestry.com. I mean, at this time, at-home DNA testing is all the rage, and if it could work on other people to find their family members, why wouldn't it work on her? 
The website was able to find distant cousins, but unfortunately this could not lead them to find her birth parents. Desperate for answers, police reach out to multiple adoption agencies on Lisa's behalf to see if they had any databases that could assist Lisa with finding her parents, and Dr. Barbara Ray Venter responded that she would like to assist. Barbara is a genetic genealogist that assists with adoptees finding their birth parents, but in Lisa's case, she literally only had Lisa's DNA to work with. No date of birth, no official name, no place of birth, nothing. But Barbara was up for the challenge. I love, love, love this. I think these genealogists are so cool. I've heard other cases of where, like, things have been solved and obviously, like, just family tree and lines and things like that interest me. You go, Barbara. Yes. And you find homes and moms for those who were out for adoption for whatever reason and that's super cool that they can like provide that gap for them absolutely and i was going to dig in to exactly like how she did this but honestly it it, like went over my head (laughs) it's so complex but yeah i i agree it's really really cool By now, Lisa is 35 years old, and after Barbara spends thousands and thousands of hours researching, she is finally able to track down Lisa's paternal grandfather. His name is Armin Bodan, and he lives in Manchester, New Hampshire. Armin tells authorities that his daughter's name is Denise Bodan, and she had a daughter in 1981. Lisa's real name is Don Bodan. He explains that the last time he saw Denise and Don, was Thanksgiving in 1981 when Don was just five months old. They shared Thanksgiving dinner together with Denise's then-boyfriend, Bob Evans. Bob shared with the family that they would be leaving town eventually as he owed people money, and they were going to start fresh somewhere else. One week later, Armand visited Denise and Bob's home to invite them to Christmas, but he learned that they had already packed up and left in a hurry. Because Armand knew that they had been planning on moving, He did not file a missing persons report for his daughter or granddaughter. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Bob Evans was the last person seen with Dawn, a.k.a. Lisa in New Hampshire. And then Gordon Jensen, a.k.a. Curtis Kimball, abandons her in California five years later. So police show Armand a photograph of Kimball and Armand immediately identifies him as the man he knew as Bob Evans. Again, We received some answers, but we're still left with more questions. The main one being, where is Denise? Okay, so my, I have twin sisters, right? And one of them always has this identity crisis of like, what if I'm actually the other? And it's just like them being twins. So I could not imagine how Dawn would feel knowing this when it came to fruition for her. Absolutely. Like, I know a name is just a name, but, like, this is a whole nother level, and this is why this stuff scares me. Yes, I do not like it. Absolutely, and it, it was a pretty slow process, unfortunately, right? So she's 22 years old when she finds out the man that she knew has her father that abandoned her was not her father, and then, you know, at 35, she's finally getting some answers, but she's like, well, where's my mother, you know? Also, 
Jensen has lived so many lives. It's already exhausting to me. I don't know how you have the time or energy to do this, bro. <laughs> but that's like weird how are you meeting all these people and finding these whole families and then just doing it again yes absolutely and that's the thing it's not it's not like these are random people it's like he creates new identities and creates like these new families relationships in in different towns now we started in california now we're in we're in new hampshire and yeah it's just exhausting (laughs) absolutely it is now 2016 when an official missing persons report is filed for denise bodan now we know that curtis kimball aka bob evans aka gordon jensen (laughs) aka larry vanner aka gerald mockerman is a convicted killer and now he is the main suspect in denise's case Unfortunately, he would not provide authorities with answers, even if he did want to talk, because in 2010, Curtis Kimball died in prison from natural causes. Pop out. Agreed. <laughs> like, how dare you? Yeah, like, stay alive, sir. We know everything. Exactly. Authorities started from scratch investigating the disappearance of Denise, and they knew that they should start by looking in New Hampshire, as this was the last known place she was. Looking more into Bob Evans' past, they find that he had been working odd jobs as an electrician, plumber, or handyman around Manchester and found that he completed several jobs at a campsite in Bear Brook State Park. Interesting enough, there had been four unidentified victims that were found in barrels in Bear Brook State Park in 1985 and 2000. The case had been cold ever since, but one of the victims was an adult female around the same age that Denise would have been when she supposedly left New Hampshire with Bob Evans, and the state park was only a 25-minute drive from Manchester. Now, to fully understand where this case turns from here, we have to go all the way back to 1985 when the first victims were found. Bear Brook State Park is located in Allenstown, New Hampshire, and it's a 10,000-acre park with dense woods. On November 10, 1985, a hunter found a tipped-over metal barrel with human remains wrapped in plastic and electrical wire. We would later find out that a few young boys discovered the barrel several months earlier while playing hide-and-seek on four-wheelers, and had tipped over the barrel, but when faced with a horrendous smell and a whitish liquid pouring out, they believed it must have been boiled milk and returned home without notifying police. When police pull the remains from the rusted 55-gallon drum, they find an adult female estimated to be between the ages of 23 and 33, and a female child estimated to be between 8 and 11 years old. Both victims died from blunt force trauma to the head. As a missing persons report was sent out to the surrounding area, police had a hard time believing that no one was looking for a missing woman and a child, but that's exactly what happened. Two years after the woman and her young child were found in the woods, they were buried nearby in a cemetery with a donated headstone from a local company. The case became colder and colder throughout the years, but was never forgotten by the small population of Allenstown. Now, the next break in the Bear Brook murders would come 15 years later when the case was unofficially assigned by a state trooper by the name of John Cody. John really only had the barrel and evidence to start reviewing, so he decides to make the trip into Bear Brook State Park to see for himself where the barrel was found. John walked through the woods for hours trying to find anything to help solve the case. As he was about to call it a day, he noticed a small hump in the distance that looked unnatural for the area. John Cody would discover a second barrel containing two more victims. The first victim was estimated to be between the age of two and four, 
and the other victim was estimated between one and three years old. The barrel they were found in was practically identical in size and color, and these victims were also wrapped in plastic. Both victims had also died from blunt force trauma to the head. It was clear to detectives that the two barrels were connected and the same person killed all four victims. Similar to the first barrel victims, police were unable to identify these victims and the case yet again went cold. Now, 15 years later in 2015, all four victims had their DNA tested against one another to see if any victim was related to one another. The test showed that the adult woman was the mother of the oldest child and the youngest child, but the middle child was not related biologically at all. Yet again, one answer that would result in even more questions. Yeah, I definitely agree with it asks for more questions than it answers because of just the victimology there of two children that were killed with their mother and then one that wasn't related at all. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, they were found in the same park and presumably dumped at the same time, but one was found 15 years later. So it's like they were missing half the pieces. Yeah. Back in California in 2016, police received the DNA test that Don Bodan was not related to any of the Bear Brook murder victims. Seemingly at a dead end in both cases, but knowing that Kimball was a murderer and was in New Hampshire around this time, authorities decide to test his DNA to all four victims and they catch a break. The middle child was the biological daughter of Kimball. Now, this ties Kimball to the Bear Brook murder case directly. Now, knowing the murderer's identity before knowing any of the victim's identity is extremely rare, but with this information, authorities have a hunch that Curtis Kimball is also a fake identity, as he was known as Bob Evans well before Curtis Kimball was fingerprinted for the first time in 1985. Really, they assume that Curtis Kimball was his true identity because that was the first known identity that popped up under his fingerprints. Authorities reach out to genetic genealogist Barbara again to see if she can dig up the real identity of Kimball, and using the same technique she used to identify Don's identity, Barbara found that the true identity of convicted murderer Curtis Kimball was Terry Peter Rasmussen from Colorado. Okay, so how many identities are we at now? I think that's six. Yeah, like, that is crazy. Well, and he also died as Curtis Kimball <laughs> in prison. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, who is this man? Yeah, that's the next thing. So who the heck is Terry Rasmussen? Terry Rasmussen, a.k.a. Curtis Kimball, a.k.a. Bob Evans, a.k.a. Gordon Jensen, a.k.a. Larry Vanner, a.k.a. Gerald Mockerman, and is now referred to as the Chameleon Killer, was born December 23, 1943, in Colorado. He attended high school in Arizona and dropped out his sophomore year and joined the Navy in 1961. There, he was trained as an electrician and served for six years at bases around the West Coast and in Okinawa. After this, he seemingly had a normal life at first. He was married in Hawaii in 1968, and he and his wife moved to Phoenix, Arizona a year later, where his first two children were born, twin daughters. In 1970, they moved to Redwood City, California, where his son was born, and in 1972, they had another daughter. In 1973, the family moves back to Phoenix, but here, Rasmussen begins to get in trouble with the law. He was arrested in Maricopa County in 1973 for an unknown charge, 
1975, he is arrested in Phoenix for aggravated assault. His wife then leaves him and takes the children, and by 1978, their divorce is final. The last time Rasmussen saw his ex-wife and children was in 1976 when he showed up unexpectedly with an unknown woman and said he was living in Texas. Police find that the first known time that Terry began using the fake identity, Robert Evans, was in 1980 when he was arrested for issuing a bad check in Manchester, New Hampshire. He Did he end up in Texas or then he was in New Hampshire with this new woman or was he just saying that? So I've included a timeline in the description box below of his official whereabouts. So we do know at one point he was in Texas. Okay. We don't know if like that was a lie that he was like really in Texas living with that woman in 1976, but he was back in Manchester, New Hampshire in 1980. Okay, and then with his first stint in this world (laughs) and his original family yes did anything happen to any of them or once the divorce was final he kind of left them alone yeah so his his regular family like his wife now ex-wife and his four children yeah they were all good except the daughter does state that the mom told her that he used to burn the son with cigarettes so i'm assuming they're i mean granted like they're all all alive but there definitely was some some trauma there yeah yeah for sure now because barbara identified terry's drew identity in 2016 she was also able to identify his ex-wife and children that found out their father was most likely a serial killer One of Rasmussen's daughter, Diane, for an interview for the 2020 episode states that if her mother had not left him, she was sure that he would have killed them. She and two of her siblings have Rasmussen's sparkling blue eyes, and as an adult, she admits that she feels guilt that she is biologically related to Rasmussen. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine what they felt like when they found this out. Like, I would be terrified. Well, and the way that she explains it is that this officer this police officer is putting down all of these mug shots in front of them and it's clearly him and she's just astounded yeah that's ugh. yeah but of course the story doesn't end there we still have the four bearbrook murder victims without names and because this case was so complex and there was still such mystery behind this case private citizens began investigating the case Becky Heather was a librarian who had a hobby for looking into mysteries, which, same girl. (laughs) And she began spending her free time on missing persons message boards, looking for anyone missing a woman and her two children. Becky had poured over thousands of posts and finally found multiple posts from family members looking for who Becky thought fit the three related Bear Brook murder victims. Becky reached out to these family members and communicated with one woman over several texts, and Becky's heart stopped when the woman dropped a bombshell. This woman's missing relative had married a man with the last name of Rasmussen. This tip by Becky was provided to New Hampshire authorities and was deemed credible, but at the same time, our girl Barbara had been narrowing in on the identities as well. Turns out, Barbara had read an article about a new forensic technique that could obtain autosomal DNA from hair that no longer contained the root, Now, if you're not aware, before this, you could only obtain DNA from hairs with the root attached because that's where the DNA is rich, but this technique could obtain DNA from the hair shaft itself. 
Barbara had the authorities send over the victim's hair, in which he passed along to a professor named Ed Green at UC Santa Cruz, where he works to develop new DNA technology. With this DNA profile, Barbara was able to confirm Heather's tip and name three out of the four Bear Brook murder victims. In 2019, authorities publicly announced their identities. The adult woman's name was Marlise Honeychurch. Her first daughter, the oldest child victim's name, was Marie Vaughn, and her second daughter, the youngest victim, was Sarah McWaters. So, did they have different last names? Yeah, they all had different last names. So, Rasmussen was the third boyfriend slash like common law married husband okay and then hers was honey church and then the two girls had different last names as well mm-hmm. yeah but they they were biologically related to marley's okay that makes sense well good for barbara on staying on top of this and getting stuff done because these ladies can finally be put to rest under their names that's That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And it's crazy that at the same time, like web sleuths, Mm -hmm. you know, just like (laughs) solving true crime on the side. Yeah. Yeah, that they unrelated were, you know, finding the identities at the same time. Now, the last time Marlise and her two daughters were seen alive was at her mother's house in La Puente, California in 1978 in November when she brought her boyfriend, Terry Rasmussen, to meet her family. Marlise's brother and sister recalled that there had been an argument between Marlise and her mother, and upset Marlise took the children and left with Terry. Although her siblings were not able to confirm what the argument was about, they presumed that maybe their mother told Marlise that Rasmussen was too old for her. Police believe that Marlise died one to two years later after she left her mother's home, making her 26 or 27 at the time of her death. For decades until her mother's death, Their mother blamed herself for Marlise's, Marie's, Sarah's disappearance, but she could never have known that the real reason was because of Rasmussen. Of course, because Rasmussen is deceased, we may never know the true reason as to why he murdered Marlise, Marie, and Sarah, but one theory is that maybe Marlise found out that he was abusing the girls and confronted him. But again, we have a lot of theories, but we'll most likely not know the answers to a lot of questions in this case. But like you said, In 2019, Marlise's family were able to have a proper burial for their sister and their nieces. Rasmussen's daughter, Diane, also attended their funeral after she met and bonded with the victim's family. So, at this point, do you know how many people we're at that he actually murdered? So, right now, the four victims, and we know for sure he was convicted on on soons so that's five and possibly a lot possibly a lot more right he's like all over the place all these different identities so much to think about yeah there's a i mean a lot going on here and i'm just happy that at the end of the day there were people dedicated to this case because this would have been a completely different story if no one took the time to do anything And even people that this wasn't even their job. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know we have covered a lot in this case, but if you remember, there are still at least two main mysteries to solve. Finding the identity of the fourth Bearbrook murder victim and finding Denise Bodan. I am positive that we will one day know at least the identity of the fourth victim who has been nicknamed Angel by Marlise's family because Barbara is working on it as we speak. 
She stated for the ABC 2020 episode that, quote, I am hopeful that we'll be able to identify who the fourth victim is fairly soon, but with these kind of cases, it's difficult to predict how long it's going to take, end quote. And since the episode ended, recent genealogy efforts have identified that her mother has relatives from Pearl River County, Mississippi, and she could be the fifth or sixth great-grandchild of Thomas Deadhorse Mitchell, born in 1836, or William Livings, born in 1826. I also have a small update on the Bodans as well. In 2016, Lisa, aka Don Bodan, flew to New Hampshire to meet her grandfather Armand. In 2018, she made the trip again, but this time with her husband and three children. Armand was asked in a news article for the New Hampshire Union Leader in 2020 if he holds out hope that one day Denise would be found. And he said, quote, you've always got that in the back of your mind. I try not to have too much hope because I don't want to get disappointed, end quote. But getting his granddaughter back was a gift. And finally, before I conclude today's episode, I want to leave you with one more possible mystery, as if your brain hadn't been scrambled enough. A former detective believes there is another unidentified victim that Rasmussen is responsible for. Scavengers found a refrigerator containing a severely decomposed woman's body that had been dumped in a canal in San Joaquin County, California in 1995. The cause of her death was blunt force trauma to the head, and inside the fridge, along with the victim, a pillow, a sleeping bag, and lots of blankets, was a unique brand of milk that was only delivered to a certain area. This area matched up with where Rasmussen had been at the time. So we really don't know how many murders can be tied to Rasmussen, but of course we'll keep you updated on any new information regarding the case. And if you do know anything regarding this case, please reach out to law enforcement officials. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so this case was a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I'm still in shock, and I know I've said it 50 times. I don't know how one person can do this like i'm exhausted listening to this i don't know how you can actually follow like through with it. these acts yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's crazy but i'm glad that they had some good people here to help and it it really does sound like they're getting close yeah to the fourth victim so hopefully angel will find her wings and be able to be fully named and put to rest and that will at least be some positive in all this messiness but wow yeah well and then also like if we do find out the identity of the fourth victim was which is rasmussen's biological daughter where is her mother is she a victim as well you know so it's it's i mean each answer might follow up with more questions but at least maybe finally they'll get to the end of this and be able to put it all to bed but i mean it's just wow (laughs) yeah i told you this was a good case for a red stringed wall yes for sure i am disappointed though that he died in prison of natural causes before a lot of this could be solidified i mean i get i just get disappointed when things like that happen because when to me you should rot in jail for the rest of your life yeah and rose actually had said that when she knew him as larry vanner and she knew that he had died she said you know i wish he had lived longer so he Mm -hmm. could suffer for longer exactly yeah yeah but But. i mean he was a kind of serial killer that would infiltrate single woman's 
um, relationship with their children, isolate them, and then for whatever reason, right, we still don't even know the motive. We don't even know the motive from Unsun's case. Yeah, like from day one, we don't know what was going yeah. on. So like his last one, there was no way we yeah. were going to find out. So we'll definitely keep you updated because I'm going to be following along. I'm like obsessed with this case now. And I may become like Becky and start looking and see if I can help. Yeah, this would victim. be one of those things of like whenever you die, if you could have all the questions answered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. this one's added to the list now absolutely i need all of his victims mm-hmm. and with that this will conclude today's episode let us know your thoughts on instagram and facebook at logo stories and while you're there don't forget to follow us if you haven't already if you have a case suggestion please reach out through our website at logostories.net all of today's source material will be linked in the description box below we'll be back with a new episode in a couple weeks but until then stay safe out there It's a weird world. Thank you to Alexander Nakarada for allowing us to use his sound nightmare for a theme music.